Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. to Encounter Church. Um, that was amazing. I almost wanted to just hang out and just say, go do that again. Um, especially in this season of life, we're um, about seven weeks today into a newborn in our household. And I have to be honest, um, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. Um, my wife, Risa, she just showed me this past week, she held up a picture from Facebook. She said, hey, look, look at our daughter. We have a seven-year-old. She actually, she was sleeping through the night at this point. Isn't that amazing? And we're looking at the picture and her like celebration on Facebook. And we're both like, huge bags under our eyes because we're number one, love to sleep. Number two has a different kind of love. He's actually really good at being able to sense the point where the adult brain is about to go into that good sleep and he wakes up right at that moment. So he knows that he takes it from us. In fact, like we don't even imagine we're ever going to get to sleep through a full night again, probably till around, I don't know, 17 years from now. Um, he has this really, one of his favorite ways of waking you up is through making these nose noises in his um, little crib that makes it sound like he's choking. So you kind of instantly have an adrenaline rush. You pop up out of the bed, you run over and there he is. And he's like, he's kind of spit up a little bit. And so two nights ago, he makes this noise, you know, we grab him like, are you okay? Are you choking? And and um, he makes this really deep guttural sound. And all of a sudden, it's like, bam. And I'm like, my wife hears me like, oh, my goodness. And she comes running in. And I am covered with spit up because he's a projectile kind of guy. Never dealt with that before. So that's brand new. And it's just all over my face. The only thing that saved me was my mouth was closed because I don't think there's a counselor on planet Earth that could fix what would have happened to me had that happened to me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm holding him and we're just like, we're not sure what to do. And so my wife's reading, she's read multiple books over the last few weeks. And the thing that she keeps coming across is this idea of the fourth trimester, that some babies are still kind of like longing for the womb. And so she's been reading through and trying to recreate some of those womb-like environment so that maybe he'll rest. One of them, you know, is the swaddling and the holding tight and the kind of movements. And another thing that she found out that was an amazing piece of information um, is that the human body actually inside the womb is really loud, that it's about 90 to 95 dB on the inside. That's decibels. To give you a sense, that powerful moment in the song a few minutes ago where it was really kind of loud and big, that's 95 decibels. Right, And so we're talking about an incredibly loud environment on the inside. And one of the things that they recommend in order to kind of create that environment for the child is that even with the, the fluid in, present in the womb, the, the 90, 95 can drop down to 65. You still, um, they recommend playing this um, kind of loud noise in the background. It sounds like shushing because the shushing sound actually sounds like what it sounds like for the mother's like blood flowing through the vessel and the heartbeat and the breathing. And so in our house, um, we we have this like machine that pumps out a ridiculously loud volume of white noise at all times. So where you're sitting in our house, you're in the kitchen, you walk to the bedroom, it's just this constant like low grade and, and so I hear it all the time, but then sometimes I don't because after it starts playing, I forget about it. And one of the things that happened this week that I was just like, oh my goodness, finally, was Jenny walked into the bedroom. He had just fallen asleep and she was like, I'm going to try this. And she turned it off. 
I was like, I didn't even realize it was on. But it was just like, it was so loud. It was my like blood pressure slightly elevated. I feel like I can't find any like peace and quiet on the inside. Some of you just felt what I felt with the sound that was playing underneath my voice. And there's something like powerful and releasing about that thing just being shut off and having peace and quiet. And that the goal of this series was to do what you just experienced for you emotionally. That we've been in this series called You're Not the Boss of Me, right? Where we're leaning into emotions, those emotions that kind of operate underneath the surface as really loud emotional background noise. Loud noises that dominate our conversations, loud noises that dominate how we see and experience things. We've looked at some different emotions that have that kind of effect on us. But on today, I want to look at the emotion that's perhaps the most powerful of them all. It's one that is that constant 60, 65, 70 dB background noise in our life. It's one that shapes how we live our life. It's not just powerful. It's potent. It's used against us regularly. It's the emotion of guilt. Because guilt is one of those perhaps most potent and powerful forces in our life. If you probably remember as a kid, it was used on you as a weapon by your parents to get you to conform. You hated it at the time, and now as parents, you use it on your kids to get them to conform. Your employers use it to squeeze more out of you. You use it on your spouse because you know it works. That we all hate being on the receiving end, but we all know how powerful it is, so oftentimes we use it and we are on the giving end of it. And it's a force that you and I were never meant to live with. And we want freedom from it. Unfortunately, when you were born, no one handed you a little manual that says, here's how to deal with guilt. But yet, it's one of those early experiences. I just watched this play. Ella was talking about something uh, she was dealing with at school this week. And she was, Jenny was like, well, I appreciate you sharing. Why didn't you, you know, do it? Why didn't you make that decision? She was like, because I remember when I was um, at the gym that day and me and my friend were coloring that paper and we were both working on it. And then I took it and I, I never asked her if I could have it. Now, this girl was four years old when this happened and she remembered how icky this feeling was. As a four-year-old. And so now as a seven-year-old, she was avoiding a similar moment because she remembered how nasty that feeling was. I never had to sit her down and say, hey, Ella, I want to teach you about guilt. I want to make you feel guilt. It was something she instinctively, intuitively felt and experienced. Because no one had to teach us how to do it. But the challenge with this emotion is no one teaches us how to deal with it either. And what I want to do today over the course of our time together is talk about how to deal with guilt in a very kind of practical, pragmatic way. Ultimately, I recognize there are so many different stories and circumstances that maybe the way that I will skim the surface of first steps for dealing with guilt may not speak exactly to your circumstance. That's one of the reasons the app is there is because we'd love to connect with you, take you to coffee, hear more of your story, and, and say, here's what this would look like fleshed out. But I also don't want to just leave it at dealing with guilt. I want us to, to see in a story how we can find deliverance from its power. And to, to do that, to, to know how to deal with it and to find deliverance from it, I want to take you to a story that maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard before. 
But I don't want to deal with the story the way that most people talk about it. I think that there's a moment in this story, actually two moments in this story, that's really instructive for us, that show us how we can deal with guilt, and it shows us how we can find deliverance from it. It's one of Jesus' most famous stories. So even if you perhaps didn't grow up in a religious household or context, you may have even heard rumors of this in other pieces of literature. It's, it's the story that Jesus tells in a very pinnacle moment with a large kind of gathered crowd around him. It's found in Luke chapter 15. Um, as I read through it, you'll see it on the screens behind me. It's also already preloaded in the Encounter Church app that I alluded to earlier. Um, the message notes, if you click on that, you'll find the passage is already there, along with some space to take notes and process through what we're talking about today. Uh, Luke, if you're new to, to the Christian faith or new to this church scene, Luke is named for its author, Luke. Luke was a medical doctor turned historian researcher. Um, he was paid by a kind of a powerful official to look into and research this thing called Christianity that was beginning to rise at the time in the Roman Empire. Luke begins to kind of deep dive into Christianity in its early years. He sits down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and spends time with her. He spends time with the uh, the disciples or Jesus's early fathers, followers, and he even actually goes on trips with one of Christianity's most kind of famous messengers, the guy named Paul. So Luke does a really good job of researching. He's uh, kind of embodies that full journalistic bent of going on scene live to make sure he has a full understanding of the circumstance and situation. And what comes out of that research is a two-volume set. The two volumes are in the New Testament. One of those volumes we call the book of Luke, and the other volume we call the book of Acts. And those are the two volumes that Luke wrote in the midst of his research. So because of Luke's training as a medical doctor, Luke's clear intelligence that comes out, you, you can see in both of his writings that Luke was really thoughtful, brilliant. He was masterful at the language that he wrote it in. And you kind of, as you read through the book of Luke, you have this deep appreciation for what kind of man he must have been. In Luke 15, he's kind of tracking along Jesus' rise in ministry, and he gets to this point where about halfway through, Jesus is starting to make some enemies just as much as he's starting to make some friends. There's some people who are really agitated by Jesus' teachings, and it's mainly the religious people. You see, the religious people were threatened by some of Jesus' teachings because it's not just parents and kids and employers that have used guilt to manipulate. Religious teachers have used guilt to manipulate for centuries, too. And Jesus is starting to undercut some of their authority. And in the middle of a gathering one day, Jesus launches into a story, actually a series of three stories that make similar points. But it's a little bit of a kind of a rising action. So the third story is his kind of punchline. It's the biggest. It's the most powerful. And that's the story that I want us to kind of briefly dip into. It starts around verse 11 in Luke chapter 15. It says, Jesus continued because now he's into the third of the three stories. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, what I love about ancient Middle Eastern cultures is um, when you understand the context and what these people were like, you, you can appreciate Jesus' storytelling ability even better. You see, uh, in ancient kind of Jewish culture, uh, it was an honor-shame culture, which meant that one of the most important things that you did with your, people, with your parents was you honored them. It still exists, that honor-shame dynamic still exists around the world today. But what, what Jesus is saying, that this son is saying to his father, 
um, we can miss it as Westerners. When he says to his father, give me my share of the estate, he's not going to his father and saying, hey, give me some investment capital so I can go start my own business. He's saying to his father, father, I wish you were dead. So let's pretend like you already are and give me what I should get when you die. It's incredibly disrespectful. He is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. So I'm going to pretend like you already are. Give me my peace. Now, because of the laws back then and the way um, inheritance worked, the oldest got two-thirds and the would get kind of the double portion of the sharing. So if you had um, two kids, that means there's going to be three shares. The oldest gets two shares and the youngest gets one of them. Um, my daughter, consequentially, I remember her learning about this principle and she regretted that in today's world, this does no longer apply because she quickly realized and the math, what she was going to lose, which then I had to remind her that I'm a pastor and she will get nothing when I die. Um, and so, you know, she was okay with it after that, but like, she was like, wait, what really? That's the way it worked back then. Yes. And so the younger is saying, give me my third of the inheritance. And it says that after the father divides his property between them. Now, at this point, everyone hates this son in the story. Everyone. He is the perfect enemy in this storyline. It says, not long after that, the young son got together all he had, and he set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. So here's this kid. He's, his father gives it to him, and this father watches the little boy who used to run to him now walk away from him with a portion of everything that he owned. You can just imagine the devastation emotionally for that father watching his son walk away. And that son doesn't just go to a neighboring town. It says he goes to a distant country. And what does he do? He begins to live completely opposite of how he was raised. Consequentially, he, the relationship between them had already broken apart. It turns out when you tell someone you wish they were dead, that doesn't necessarily lead to one of the key steps in building a strong relationship. So he eventually, spatially, geographically did what was already relationally present. They were already distant. And so he finally moved his body away. And some of you know what it's like to be relationally distant with someone that's spatially, geographically close. And it's painful. And this is what this father has been experiencing. And now the, the most tragic is that his son walks away. And as his son goes away, it says, the story continues, that after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And so famines were a big deal. Today, we don't even register what a famine is. Uh, we have things like Walmart. We have things like Wegmans. We have Amazon. So we don't know what it's like for all of a sudden something to kind of just go out of stock. Unless you happen to like something like cotton candy grapes, um, which is one of my daughter's favorite grapes that are only in season for one month out of an entire year. Like we don't know what it's like to lack something. But when a famine hits, a famine actually causes all, all the markets to dry up. And all of a sudden there is no food. There is no water. And it's only the wealthy. It's only those who've kind of put aside in the past that have anything for the present. And, it, and because of this, it says that he begins to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. Now, again, the Jewish listeners of the story have been like, <gasps> it would have been a shock because they're Jewish. To, to touch a pig is unclean. You 
It's unheard of if you're Jewish to interact with a pig. There are still cultures today who see pork as unclean. It's not kosher. It doesn't meet the standards. And, and in fact, one of the common, it, like, you know, I don't know if you had this growing up, but where I kind of growing up in my age, it, like the best fighting words on the playground was your mama, right? You know what I'm talking about? It, it, you could be like, it could be the monkey bars. It could be another girl. But all someone had to do was say, your mama is. And all of a sudden, you're like rolling up your sleeves. You're throwing down your juice box because you're ready to rumble, right? Your mama is fighting words. And in this day and age, one of the fighting words in the Jewish culture was to say something like, well, you know what? May your mama have to raise pigs or may your son have to feed pigs like that was a curse. Like nowadays, people are like, mmm, bacon, right? But not then. They would be really offended. They were like, oh, no, you didn't. Pulling off that robe, they're getting ready to roll down. That's like curse words. And so this guy is literally experiencing the worst possible scenario as a Jewish man. He's taking care of pigs. And not only that, look at it. He says in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. Not only is this guy at rock bottom, he's watching pigs eat food that he can't even get. And no one even cares about him. I mean, imagine he's sitting there starving and someone comes and feeds the pigs and ignores him. Like this is this is painful. This is low. This is completely opposite of what he had before. And then it says. In verse 17, when he came to his senses, which is an interesting phrase. It's a quite telling phrase, actually, as we have this conversation today about how to deal with guilt. Uh, There was a study done um, by a couple of researchers from George Mason University. It was in the Journal of Psychological Science. What they did is they, they picked about 400 inmates in prison. And through extensive researching and conversations and visitations, they kind of began to build the picture of what these inmates, who they were, what they'd done, why they'd done it. This was a longitudinal study, which meant that they didn't just do it one time. They followed them over a period of time. And so they continued to drop into these um, individuals' lives. And as they began to um, be released from prison, they would continue to do interviews And after this longitudinal study, one of the things that came out that was really fascinating was that they were able to group people into two different qualifications, two different classes of individuals. One would get out of prison, and they were less likely to repeat a crime. And then the other would get out of prison, and they would actually be more likely to repeat a crime and end back up in prison. And they began to try to understand why are there these two distinct groups of people? And what they found is exactly what's playing out in this passage. Is that we live in a day and age where the word sorry gets used a lot. But sorry is a tricky word, isn't it? If you've ever been on the other side of someone saying, I'm sorry that it hurt you. I'm sorry my words offended you. Sometimes you can walk away from something like that and you're not 100% sure what exactly they are sorry about. You're like, wait, are you? Are you sorry for what you did or are you sorry for what it did to me? Because that's different. Right? 
And you, you, you can't always label it, but when you walk away from someone who's given you a sorry and they still feel sorry because of it, and you're like, they're sorry, right? It was you sorry. And you're, you're like, something didn't. It's because they're highlighting something that's played out that these researchers saw. You see, there were a group of people who experienced true guilt. And then there were people who experienced something akin to a false guilt or a shame. The ones who experienced true guilt and steps that I'm about to walk you through. They were less likely to repeat the crime. But the ones who had experienced this kind of false guilt, they were actually more likely to repeat the crime. They were the ones who would say, I'm sorry for what it did to you. But they always had an excuse. The I'm sorry, but. Or I'm sorry because I da, 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 da. Because none of us like to be on the other end of it. I am sorry, but. You're like, oh, there, there you go. Just erasing everything you just said. And this group tended to respond that way. And so when it says that he came to his senses, what it's doing is actually using a Hebrew idiom to point to this other type, this true guilt. What the Bible uses is a word called repentance. Repentance is an interesting concept because uh, one of one of the ways it would be talked about was like a, in a kind of a military parlance where you're walking and when you repented as a soldier, you, you turned and you walked the other way. You see, what they found was there was either you were either going to repent or you were going to repeat. Maybe you've been there before. I'm sorry, this is the last time until it's the next time, which that will be the last time. See, there's repentance, and then there's repentance. And repentance is just the temporary delay as you continue along your way. Repentance is a complete turning and going the other way. And this man comes to his senses. What it means is he repents. He's sitting there, and all of a sudden, in a flash, he sees and he realizes What's happened? You see, at the heart of repentance, at the heart of true guilt, is an acknowledgement of the wrong and a, and a, re, and a responsibility that you had in it. Um, oftentimes, repentance looks in the mirror and sees the problem staring right back at them. Repentance, however, looks out and sees all the different reasons for why it happened, but it doesn't look in the mirror. Well, I had a stressful day at work. Or it was a really, it, you know, it's been a hard season. There's, there's always a reason and a rationale for repentance. But repentance says, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I. If you notice in his phrasing, as it says, when he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He's like, I'm an idiot. I will set out and go back to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's taking responsibility. I statements, not you statements. Well, you said this, so that's why I got upset. Well, you did that, so that's why I did that. No, it's I, responsibility. I'm owning it. I'm acknowledging the wrong in it. And then the repentance plays out as even the researchers found in a continual motion through its attitude and action. 
People who are repentant, they don't keep repeating. They actually try to do something different. They don't repeat and remain. They try to restore and repay. So what does he do? He goes back. He's trying to restore the relationship. He's trying to repair what's been broken. He's not trying to repeat it. He's not trying to dodge it. He's acknowledging, Father, I hurt you. I did this. And for some of us, one of the most powerful steps in us beginning to deal with guilt is to look at the man or the woman in the mirror and to own it. It is painful, yes. But there is more pain in concealing it and repeating it than there is in confessing and recognizing your responsibility in it. There is more pain in in trying to conceal it and the pain that will come in repeating it than there is in the acknowledging it, the confessing it, and the recognizing it. And so I just want to give you a couple of phrases for the next time you find yourself in that place or for where you found yourself last night or where you find yourself today. It's really simple. It's hard to say. But you start out with, hey, I want to apologize for what I did wrong. What I did was wrong. And just opening the gate, just avoid the word sorry. Sorry is a sorry word. It really is. Apologize has a little bit more gravitas to it, has a little bit more weight to it. You're not being dodgy or shifty. You're not being ambiguous or abstract. You apologize for the words that came out of your mouth. You apologize for not following through with what you said you would do. You apologize with specificity to the person whom that specificity impacted. That taking responsibility and acknowledging it. And... In the words, I was wrong. Let it come out. It may take four or 40 times. But sit in it until you can say, I was wrong. And then say, how can I make this right? This is the restore piece. How can I make this right? And it may be something simple or Because of what's happened, it may be really difficult. But do not ask the question unless you're willing to follow through on the action. Because then you're not truly apologetic. And then the final piece, and this is the part that I think causes the most emotional weight, is to say, please forgive me. Because at this point, this is where humility seeks in. Is when you say, please forgive me, all of a sudden, now... You're at the mercy of them. And here's what I think. Even the word forgive actually think points to this underlying aspect. When someone forgives someone, someone is paying for something that's been done. There's a costliness to forgiving someone. That's why the word give is in there. Because when you say forgive me, it means you literally are giving them something. It may be that what they said to you deeply hurt you, deeply hurt you, and for you to forgive them means that you're not you're not going to be able to like that all that pain and grief and hours that you spent thinking about what they said or did to you. You're going to have to to suck it up and pay the cost for that. 
You're not going to extract it back out with the cold shoulder. You're not going to pull it back out with little snarky comments. You're going to pay for the price of what they did to you. Forgiveness always costs something. And the person forgiving is always the one who has to pay it. That's why I think forgiveness is such a heavy thing because it just doesn't feel right. You hurt me. You should pay. You should be the one who's miserable, but I'm miserable. No, I don't want you to be not miserable. I want you to sink and stick and live in that misery. Even as kids, right? You're going to sit in this room and you're going to think about what you did and you're just going to sit in it. You're going to feel horrible for it. Forgiveness on the other side kind of stinks because it means you're writing a check that you deep down inside want them to cover. And you're the one who's having to pay. And isn't that what he's about to go ask his father to do? He's going to show up and he's going to say, Father, forgive me. I know I spent a third of all that you owned. Forgive me. That cost his father something. That weight was there. And for his father to forgive him, he's going to have to cover the cost. That's what's underneath forgiveness. That's why it's so hard. But there's this other phrase that he uses, right? He says that when he came to his senses and he says, he begins to kind of practice what he's going to say, because I think sometimes it's wise to practice what you're going to say when you go and ask for forgiveness and confess your guilt. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It's tempting to read that sentence and think it's some grandiose statement. Like he's just being like, you know, really formal with his apology. And I don't think that's what that is. I think what he's doing is actually pointing to something significant and deeper. You see, the steps that he's taking will deal with his guilt. But it's not going to deliver him from it. The Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation um, does a lot of really good humanitarian aid around the world. Uh, one of the things that they're actively engaged with is uh, drinking water and clean water. And they had pretty aggressively sponsored wells and kind of helping to get clean water to people because they really are trying to save millions upon millions of people's lives. But one of the barriers that they began to face as they bumped up against this clean water initiative was that they would go in and they would provide clean water, but people were still getting sick and kids were still dying. You see, they had approached this issue, but they had solved the wrong problem. You see, the problem attached to the clean water problem isn't access to clean water. It's the contamination already present in the community that taints whatever water it is that comes in. So it's great if you've got clean water. But the problem is the contaminants are already present in the community. So when that clean water comes into the community, guess what happens? It gets contaminated too. And so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation literally transformed and created a whole new idea of dealing with the sanitation problem. They created uh, self-perpetual motion, um, like sewage treatment plants that can exist essentially in the space of an, a kind of an 18-wheeler truck bed that can be dropped into a community and that all the waste from pit latrines can be brought to it and it actually deals with the real problem of the water issue in third world countries, the lack of access to sewage and treatment processes. 
And when this young man says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, he's actually digging out the deeper, truer, bigger problem around guilt. Is that even in the midst of what will happen with his father, that will release him from his guilt relationally. It doesn't remove the guilt permanently. And we all kind of know that, don't we? We know that the issue, even though we ask forgiveness, the adult child that's asked for forgiveness from their parents still don't get back the years that the the parent overworked. It doesn't remove the lack of presence in their home. And there's no way you can remove the damage of you can't un unfaithful your relationship. You can't do that, no matter how broken. You can't undo what you have done. You can't unsay what you have said. You can't unleave someone. You can't undrink or unwork too much. And part of the challenge with guilt is that while you may release yourself from it, you have not removed yourself. You haven't removed it from you. And so what do we do? We just, we deal with it. Maybe you've got some healthy practices like what I just expressed and you say it and then you move on. But the challenge is, is what this young man understood, what the Bill Gates Foundation figured out, was that to ultimately deal with any problem, you have to solve the right problem. The right problem, right, to use this illustration, is that whenever we find ourselves in those situations and someone shakes us up, right, And all the stuff that spills out that leads to us feeling guilty. If we're being honest about our guilt, the spilling out. That's not coming from them. The spilling out is coming from what's inside of us. This inside is the problem. Even my daughter, I'm trying to teach her this. When she says, Daddy, you're making me angry. I'm like, sweetheart, I'm not making you angry. I'm bringing anger out of you. Because you don't want to do what I asked you to do. There's a difference. And when he says, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, I've sinned against heaven. What he's doing is he's realizing there's a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is the problem he's dealing with first. That's why it's said first, I have sinned against heaven. That's why he's acknowledging the reality. Because what contaminates our relationship is just merely coming out of what's already inside of us. That guilt that we get released from relationally is still present on the inside. All those moments do is just expose what's already in. And so how do we deal with the guilt? How do we not just deal with it, but how do we find deliverance from it? Because some of you have walked with guilt. Some of you have figured out that you don't get past your past. Your past is not behind you. Your past is with you, inside of you. Some of you have neglected your bodies because of guilt. Some of you have destroyed relationships or been distant in relationships because of guilt because you just thought you could move on past it. But what you found is it went with you, and it's still there. And that guilt is that 95 decibel white noise machine in the background that's constantly affecting how we experience our life. And guilt probably is the reason some of you don't like church. 
Let's just be real. You grew up in a religious context and you heard a lot about guilt and you heard a lot about why you were guilty. But no one told you how to find freedom from it. They just reminded you of it. And so you walked away saying, you know, I don't want anything to do with this because if that's all they've got, if all they have is a mirror to tell me how much I lack, I don't need that because I get that every day. And this is why Jesus tells this story because it is a scandalous story. You don't know how it ends, maybe if you've never read it. So let me tell you how it ends. He says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. This is interesting, right? So here's the son who's been gone for, we don't know how long, and he begins to head back home. And what happens is the father sees him from a long way off. Father's not inside the house, and he hears the knock. He's like, oh, I wonder who that is. But the father's on the porch looking at the road, waiting for the day that the shadow or the little figure begins to emerge. How many days did he see a little figure at the end of that road thinking, today is the day my son has come home, only to find it's just the mailman or it's just the next-door neighbor? It's not my boy. And what happens that day when he looks down the road and he recognizes that walk and he notices that gate? He bolts out of his gate. And it says he runs to him. Now, you need to realize, people are listening to this story. At this point, they're like, what's going to happen? Like, oh, my goodness. This is like the best drama. This is like this is a season finale. Like, we've had all kinds of drama, fallout, moments, surprise. Like, here's the kid. He's treating pigs and living with them. And now he's looking up to heaven and his father. Will his father accept him? Will his father receive him? What will happen? Tune in next week to find out. Right? I mean, this is a cliffhanger. What they do not expect what they would have expected would have been the father saying, oh, remember I'm dead to you, and you're dead to me too. That would have been what they expected. But what do they see? The father running, right? And like the camera in that final season after the slow motion. Son, right? And he like runs to him and it says he collapses and he falls around his neck. He falls on his son. Self-respecting Jewish men did not run in this culture. There was a little bit of pragmatic piece. A lot of times you wore a robe and for those robe wearing people in this room or dress wearing people in this room, you know, it's a little tricky to run with something way down here. And so to be a self-respecting man meant you had to hike up your, your robe and you had to run. And ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody want to see that. And this is what he does. He yanks up his skirt. He takes off sprinting towards his son because he's so excited. His boy come home. And what does he say? Like he throws in his son says, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The son's going through his speech, right? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then the father's like, shh. And it says, he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet because servants didn't wear shoes and his son had no shoes on. He's like, no, he needs Put shoes on his feet. Put a ring on his hand. That's the sign that he's got my favor. You see, when you wore a ring in the ancient times, it, you were allowed to speak on behalf. You could make decisions on behalf of the ruler or the leader. Like, it was a powerful thing to have the ring. So he's like, 
he's not just restoring his son. He's lifting his son up from where he was to begin with. He's like, and then he says, we're going to celebrate. He's like, because he was lost in verse 24. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. And what's amazing is people would have been listening and they would have been scratching their head, been like, wait, I got to wait till October to see what happens next? Like, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't how this story gets told. The story that's really good is this, like the son gets struck by lightning or trampled by the pigs on the way home because he dishonored his father and that's what he was worthy of. I'm not exaggerating. Like, that was the proper response. There are societies still today in this world where if you disobey, you dishonor your family like this, you disappear. And no one even notices. And everyone knows it's he dishonored. She dishonored. This is this culture. No one, no one expected the father's response. And while Jesus has been telling this story, he's been painting a bigger picture. He's been telling a grander story. The story of people who would have been listening, who were drawn to Jesus because they were guilty. They had done things. They had said things. They had gone places. They had undone things that they should have never undone. They were plagued with guilt. And the only way they knew how to deal with their guilt was to be reminded of it by the religious leaders of the day. Who constantly heaped things on them. Made them do things. Made them follow certain orders all for their good. Because they manipulated using guilt. They'd been taken on guilt trip after guilt trip after guilt trip with these religious leaders. And what drew them to Jesus was he was different. And here they are, they're listening and they're realizing that Jesus isn't telling some salacious story from a tabloid magazine or painting a picture for the next kind of blockbuster drama on television. Jesus is actually telling a deeper story about a deeper thing going on in the world. He's telling a story about God and God's love and God's response to guilt. He's telling them a story about grace. Jesus knows something that they don't know, and they want to know what it is. Jesus' punchline is like, look, I know that religion has taken you on guilt trips over and over and over again, and it's never removed the guilt that took you on the trip in the first place. But the beautiful, bold, surprising news of this story and the story that my life is going to tell is that the only one who has the power, true authority, right? Why does he say I sinned against heaven and against you? Why is heaven first? Is because heaven is the chief primary recipient of our guilt. That heaven, which was a Jewish way of respecting God, but still saying the name of God, like God was the one. That we'd rebelled against. God was the one that we'd pushed back. God was the one who actually was the judge who could call, call us guilty. And then Jesus, just shortly after this, makes the headline even stronger when he says this. The God who could call you guilty and take you on a trip actually took a trip for your guilt to free you from it. That in Christianity, there is no guilt trip. There is only a God who took a trip because of your guilt and my guilt. That's the guilt trip that God took. Your guilt, my guilt, his trip, his payment. 
Because guilt always requires someone to pay for it. And so how does it get paid for in Christianity? It's paid for with Jesus on the cross. That's why he dies. That's why he's punished. That's why he sacrifices. It's because what we all intuitively know is when you forgive someone, someone has to pay for it. And so Jesus says, I will cover the cost that they could never cover on their own. I will take the penalty that they deserve. I will pay for their bill. And so he does. And then what happens is this amazing thing breaks out and Christianity begins to spread. And a guy named Paul's life is transformed and he begins to live his life telling people about Christianity. But the thing with Paul is that Paul... Actually, he writes this really incredible letter. I just want to give you this phrase as we get ready to wrap up. He says in Romans, which is a letter he wrote to Rome, that's where it gets its name. He says, therefore, and therefore, for those who've taken the 112 knows that it's there for a reason. It's therefore to point back to all the things that have been there before we get to this passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul has like 27 different words for guilt and sin that he uses in like almost Romans, the letter of Romans itself, like verse chapters one through seven has a lot about guilt, has a lot about the weight of choices that we make and the things that we've done. It has a lot to say about what's on the inside that spills out. He talks about this. One through seven. And then in eight, as he's built his argument, as he's pointed to Jesus and why Jesus makes the difference, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. He's like, no conditions, no condemnation, nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those in him have to fear no condemnation for any sin. And what's amazing is Paul writes that. I I imagine he's sitting there and he's writing that letter that day. And he's like, okay, I've been building my argument because Romans, even if you don't believe anything about Christianity, you read the book of Romans. It is the most rationally, logically constructed legal argument in human history. It is flawless. And he gets to chapter 8. And he writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation. And Paul, I don't know, maybe he took his pen off for a second. He's like, "You, you sure, Paul? You see, Paul, before he was Paul, had been Saul. He had killed, he had arrested, he had persecuted, he had pursued Christians. He made it his life mission to stamp out Christianity. Like, this is almost defensive. To understand what it would have been like for Paul, it would have been as if after September 11th, Osama bin Laden came and worked for the New York Fire Department. Wrap your mind around that. Osama bin Laden comes to America and he says, hey... You don't have any proof I did it. I'm going to work for the New York Fire Department because I want to save lives here in New York City. It would have been that shocking for who Paul was. He's like, I'm the reason they're dead. I'm the reason they're arrested. I'm the reason that's happened. And then he writes the phrase, but therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just want to say for some of you who've been walking into this room or leaning in online and you've been haunted by your guilt, maybe you've dealt with it, but you've never felt delivered from it. And you've dipped into religion throughout your life and all you found was just another guilt trip. That I want you to hear the central message of Christianity is that God took a trip for your guilt so that you would never have to. That God took that trip from heaven to earth so that we could find freedom here and forevermore. And that the way that you and I receive 
that, the way that you and I access that is just to simply do what the son did. Long before he saw his father, he already did it with his heavenly father. When he showed up that day to talk to his earthly father, I'm convinced he'd already had the conversation in the pig pen with his heavenly father. He repented. He acknowledged. He took responsibility for the life that he'd lived, for the choices he'd made, for the things that he'd done, for the places he had gone, for the stuff that he did and did not do, for the words that he said and all the pain that it caused. He took responsible responsibility before God Almighty. And he said, God, forgive me. I'm done. I'm done with all of it. My actions, my attitude is going to be new now. I give it all to you. And when you ask, what do I need to do to make it right? Heaven answers back, my son is doing everything that needs to be done so that you can be right. And that for you today, I want to give you that chance. Maybe you've walked in, you've been here for weeks, or maybe you're listening online right now and you feel guilt and you're like crying out on the inside. How do I find deliverance from it? And I would say, look up to heaven. In your heart, even as I pray in a few minutes, as we wrap up, just for you to carve out a little bit of space and just say these words, God, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. God, I apologize for what I've done, for how I've lived, for the words, the deeds, the life, the attitudes, the actions, all of it. I apologize for it. Please forgive me. I believe that because of Jesus, There is no condemnation for me. Help me to experience that. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Just while I'm praying, you just pray that. For some of you who maybe you've taken a step of faith, you would say, hey, I'm a Christian, but you know what? I'm struggling with realizing and fulfilling all of this in my life. And I want to challenge you to sign up for the 112 if you've never taken it. We created the 112 because I wanted people to experience the freedom, the joy, the promise, the love, the hope, the gentleness or the goodness of God in everyday life. That, that feeling you feel when you come here sometimes, that stuff that happens on the inside, you're supposed to experience that all the time. It's not because of the music. It's not because of the message. It's because of the God of heaven and earth who loves you who called you, who created a faith for you to follow him in it. And I want you to experience that. And that's why we created the 112. It's six weeks. It's one hour a week. If you have to miss one, that's okay. We Facebook live it to a private group so you can still peek into it. But I want to challenge you, if you've never done it, to sign up. You can sign up through the app or you can sign up in starting point. But some of us, the step that we need to take today is to not just deal with our guilt, but is to move past it and to practice the deliverance that you already have in it. Because here's what I know. Of all the emotions that try to take control of us, guilt is by far the worst. It commands and demands. It becomes the boss of us. And it takes us on trip after trip with guilt after guilt. And you don't have to go anymore. You don't have to follow it anymore. Because there's a bigger, better boss who longs to show you how how his trip for your guilt can not just give you a way to deal with it, but to find deliverance from it. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? 
Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.